I got got a bottle of wild turkey and a cigar. I, I'd go all night. <laughs> okay, good. All right. <laughs> Welcome back to Kafaro. Uh, Jesus, I screwed that up. Welcome back to Kafaro Cast, everyone. I'm your co-host, Aaron Snyder. My partner in crime, uh, Frank, is shooting his bow. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, tonight we've got a special guest, uh, somebody I've looked forward to, to getting on the podcast, is uh, Dr. Ed Ashby. Uh, man, thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. And uh, from what I understand, you're you're hanging out in the, the hill country of Texas, correct? That's right. Is that where you're from originally? No, I'm originally from up in East Texas. Okay, gotcha. How long ago did you move down to the hill country? Well, after bumming around the world for all these years, I, I broke my back in a fall in New Zealand. That ended my gallivanting around the world, so I decided to move back to Texas and I've always liked the hill country. I shot my first deer down here when I was eight years old. Well, there's nothing, I, nothing wrong I'm with that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, you're a doctor. What, uh, what are you a doctor of? An optometric physician, which not every state has. Some of them just put them as optometrists. It's based on optometrists who also has medical training. Under my license, I could do surgeries, treat eye diseases, and so forth. Gotcha. Cool, cool. Well, I know there's um, uh, a, you know, kind of cut to the chase on some of this. There is a cult-like following for all of the studies that you've done, and and uh, you've got yeah, fast it, success, wasn't it? Twenty-seven oh, years of yeah. research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I known. <laughs> oh Lord, yeah, and I mean, I you know, to be uh, Garrett may have told you, uh, I'd never really. I, you know, I'd, I'd heard your name. I'd never really, you know, I've always shot, not always, but I've just kind of drifted into the heavy, I've had better luck with heavier arrows and kind of drifted into that naturally. And, and I had just recently started reading up on some of the different things you had, you had written about, but when did all that kind of get started? I mean, how many years, you said you're 72. When did you kind of get, I guess you could say maybe infatuated or start diving deep into arrow penetration and, and, and the different types of broadheads? How long ago was that and what kind of kicked it off? Well, it uh, actually started at about 82. I had been bow hunting 25 years at that point, but, uh, and it, of course, started out with traditional stuff because it's all there was. You know, then the Allen compound came along and first one thing to another. Yeah, about long, long about, I guess it was in 81, I decided, oh, okay, we're going to try one of the compounds. I did just what Elder Magazine said, and I went out and bought some multi-blade replaceable blade heads and uh, what everybody wants to call fixed blades now. And uh, had a, a Darton 65-pound, and the first year I used it, I wounded and lost four deer. And I said, ah, now wait a minute, something's wrong. Now, I grew up as a, as a rifleman. Dad was an NRA rifle instructor. And there's a ton of information on anything you want to know about guns. So that's what I was used to. So I started looking for information on, you know, what works, what doesn't as far as terminal performance. And there was nothing out there, absolute zero. So I got interested in it and started looking, you know, collecting some data, just a little bit along, and then... Out of the blue, uh, Tony Tompkinson uh, contacted me about uh, they wanted to do a study in Africa. It came the Natal study. It was in Natal province to look at the possibility of legalizing bow hunting in Africa. And that really kicked it off then. 
and it was a real fluke because uh, they were all just sitting around the table trying to figure out how to do this study and stuff. One of the things they wanted to look at is how big an animal could you take with a bow. And somebody there at the table, it might have been Chris Freeman, I'm not sure, but one of them said, you know, somebody wrote me four or five years ago wanting to uh, shoot a rhino with, with bow and arrow. And he went and dug in his files and found my letter. They got in touch with me and said, you still want to do that? <laughs> Didn't take me long to figure out to say yes. And uh, so I went over in uh, 84 and did that. And I got to talking to him a lot because we were trying to get this bow hunting thing research going. And uh, they said, why don't you come back next year and uh, let's repeat the rhino and be sure that wasn't a fluke. That didn't take much encouragement to get me to do it. And then he said, why don't you, one of the things we want to look at is, is, you know, the lethality on different shots. And said, collect as many different kinds of broadheads as you can and uh, bring them over. And let's, uh, we got to do a cull in Bacuzzi Park. We'll go in before the cull and we'll shoot as many animals as we can shoot. And we'll dissect them and see what happens. And so that's what we did. I came back that second year and did a second rhino and then went down to Bacuzzi and spent 30 days shooting animals there in the park. And uh, shot, I think that 30 days, I shot 154 animals. And we were shooting, what they wanted us to do was take the first shot that presented itself that we thought we could make, regardless of the shot angle, because they wanted to look at what happens when you make bad hit. And uh, so we would shoot them. We were backed up with the rifle. So if you hit one, it didn't look like it was uh, a lethal hit. And we weren't sure it was a lethal hit. They put it down with a rifle someplace remote where the arrow was. And we dissect it and record all the information there. Or if we couldn't do it, uh, they'd take it back in. There were two veterinarians on staff, and they'd dissect them. And we collected all that data. And, you know, they did uh, some more research the year after that. And then put it all together in uh, in the report. And the, the data they collected later was like stress stuff, uh, distance to collapse, times to collapse, uh, stress on the animal shots, stress on the animals with them, uh, things like that. But anyway, we put that in, and they uh, they presented it to the powers that be there, and then you know they got uh, bow hunting legalized, and that was the very first affirmative bow hunting law, law anywhere in Africa. Now, before that, there were a handful of places where you could hunt with a bow because they had no ways and means requirement. Years back, there were a lot of places. But starting back, you know, even in the 50s, it started getting where you had to have where the regulations and bow hunting wasn't legal. And uh, so after we got that in South Africa, the country just fell like dominoes. Other countries started legalizing bow hunting. And that got legal bow hunting into into Africa. Gotcha. Anyhow, that's how I got interested. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a good story to get interested in it. And, I got interested. I had, so, I had so many questions when we got through with the Natal study that uh, I just kept going for the next 26 years. <laughs> yeah. On that note, I've heard some crazy numbers, the amount of animals you've shot with a bow. What is the realistic rough number that you've taken with a bow? Well, Would you I guess? Have, from 82 on, I've got exact numbers because I kept 
one database of killed animals to use as comparison against what I was finding in the research, the setup shots on fresh downed animals. And so I've got uh, an exact number from 82 forward, but I have no numbers at all for the first 25 years of hunting. But I've got uh, 627 animals for the last, from 82 forward. Okay, yeah, that that is a steep number, but that is definitely feasible. Somebody told me 2,800 once, and I said, man, I don't even think that's humanly possible. Your finger would fall off. Uh, well, you, know, you can build them up fast. When I retired and moved to, uh, to Africa, uh, worked as a PH over there some, the uh, first four years I was there, I averaged better than 300 days of hunting a year. That sounds like a good living. So if I, I was an out guiding, which I just did, you know, to help other people out when they needed somebody, I didn't do it on a full-time basis. And uh, uh, when I wasn't doing that, I was hunting. And I was also doing some other research at the same time. I did uh, uh, terminal ballistics research for Barnes Bullets over there. So I was doing some rifle shooting too, so. Gotcha. Yeah, well, so I know, um, like, most of uh, – um, yeah, like the, I guess you could say the, the, I wouldn't, I don't know, debate the, 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 the trend now, like people are starting to sway more towards heavier arrows, heavier front of center. Um, something obviously you found a long time ago. One of the biggest questions I've had, I had for you personally, I haven't had much difference in penetration on a, a six or 650 grain arrow, whether it had 200 up front or 300 up front, I, I've had equally good luck with just a heavy arrow. Do you uh, do you think it makes that much difference having uh, the point weight 50 to 100 grains uh, heavier if the arrow well, weighs the same? The amount of FOC, not just the point weight, it's just how much FOC you've got. Right. And yes, it's the third biggest, third most important arrow design feature is the FOC. And that's basing it off of several thousand, somewhere around 5,000 shots into, into set-up animals, all shot at 20 yards and, uh, you know, measured 20 yards and with, with multiple air setups. But you, you know, all, these, all the study shots were planned out, you know, mm-hmm. so, so that we were doing uh, matched arrows, uh, same shaft diameter, same weight, uh, both tuned, just a matter of where the FOC was set when we were looking at FOC. And uh, same thing for the other factors that we would look at. We were using matched arrow sets on, on everything. Gotcha, gotcha. So how much, uh, and, and, and some of these questions are probably rudimentary for you, but just so the listeners that have sent in, how much difference, uh, everything being equal, if you've got a 650-grain arrow, with 200 grains up front and a 650 grain arrow, but it's got 300 grains up front. Is it a measurable difference or is it just, you're, 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 you got apples and oranges there Mm -hmm. because you're also increasing the overall weight of the animal. There are a whole bunch of factors that affect penetration, 12 main factors, but there's more factors than that. But, uh, if you took two arrows that were identical, except for the FOC, then there's a huge difference and it'll range anywhere from 40 to 60% difference in penetration. 
overall, this is taking all hits, soft tissue, bone tissue. This is aggregate. And, if, you know, on, when we were shredding it out on the, on the data, we would be looking at everything, uh, minimum penetration, maximum penetration, uh, mean average, uh, median penetration for for each set of errors. So that's why I'm talking about everything was done in, in sets of errors. Right. No, I, and that makes sense, I guess. Uh, I'm probably not explaining myself. That's way you can see what the FOC is doing. Yeah, and that's what I was curious about. Like for me, I if I fire a, a 600 frame grain arrow or 650, um, well, let's just say 600 because a lot of compound guys are starting to to move more towards that heavy FOC, heavier arrow uh, compared to, t- you know, 10 years ago, they were shooting a lot lighter arrows a lot faster. Um is the you know the I've had great luck whether it be a, a 600 grain arrow with 175 grains up front or a 600 grain arrow but the point weight's different obviously and the front of center's higher I've had good luck with with both but I'm also not firing arrows into African animals you know I'm shooting deer elk things like that and well, it's not just African animals it's uh and when we did a tall study uh, the bulk of our animals were you know, warthogs, impalas, inyalas, uh, did some kudu and zebra and, you know, bigger animals over there, but no buffalo involved in the original tall study. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only later, as era setups progressed, I had to go to bigger and bigger animals because you, to make comparisons, I must catch the era within the animal. If it sticks out the other side, now I've mixed mediums. I can no longer measure the penetration and make direct comparison. That's the same reason I had to quit using compounds. I was using compounds, crossbows, and traditional bows in the testing. But once we got the error set up to a certain point, I was getting so many exit wounds and pass-throughs, I can no longer use compounds. Yeah, that makes sense. I do everything with traditional bows. Right. No, that makes sense. And when you were doing all of this, um, I know, like, from what I've read, and I just started reading about all of this, um, you are a huge fan of the single bevel broadhead, and uh, and, and it, uh, your studies found that that penetrates more than a, a, a double bevel. It, 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 on bone hits, it's, it's a huge advantage. Yeah, and my limited... I've, I would agree with my limited knowledge on what I've shot so far with a single bevel head. And, and on my end, I've come from shooting a compound for a long time and just recently switched to shooting a traditional bow. And I've only shot like 20 animals with a traditional bow in the last couple of years. So I'm pretty green with it. Um, but when that's happened, when you kind of swap over and you go from shooting 280 to 300 feet a second out of a compound – shooting mechanicals, not always going through, and then you pick up a, a stick bow shooting 170 to 180 feet, and I'm just blowing through the animals, it definitely makes a guy like me, the the light pop on and think, you know, something about this heavy arrow cut on contact, uh, you know, there's a lot of penetration here, and it made me kind of sway more towards, uh, you know, my, my friend shooting a compound especially, I'd always shot what would be considered slow with a compound, but kind of push them into, hey, a quieter bow, heavier arrow, more momentum, higher point weight, you're going to be better off. Now, with just in soft tissue, uh, just straight pass through, double lung, 
the uh, would you choose a single bevel or a double bevel? Like most guys, just general, what would you pick? I would still choose the single bevel for a number of reasons. The single bevel, because it's rotating even through soft tissue, uh, it it gives a longer wound channel naturally because of the rotation, but it also tends to have pressure against the tissue so that it spreads the tissue as it's rotating, which ends up with a cut diameter much larger than the cut width of the broadhead. Gotcha. Sometimes you get L-shaped exits on the offside. That's not uncommon because of the twisting twist. Through. I mean, even back on a gut hit, you get a shot, you get a wound channel that's called a starburst, and uh, it'll twist the intestines up because they're very mobile. And you'll actually get little nicks all through the intestines that are as much as five inches from where the arrow passed through. As it's so, twisting. And the only way you can see that is when you're when you open the animal up, you have to inject dye into the intestines, and then you can you've got a short period of time you can see it flowing out, you know, pretty quick. There's color everywhere. Right, right. Yeah, no, and that's I mean I don't know that anyone is going to have enough time to do tests like that 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 you have done. Uh, just for the simple fact the way the world works nowadays. When when you were doing all this, was there a time? How would I break this down? Um, just because of today, everybody kind of there's a lot of talk with heavy front of center, lighter arrow, heavier arrow, and everything else. Is there a point for a compound shooter hunting in North America, especially with speed being a big portion of what people worried about today? What What would you say, like if if you're suggesting to guys for a, a compound bow shooter? What would you say for all animals? What's a general good weight of an arrow for all all animals in, let's say, North America? And uh, and, and what would your setup be, I guess? Well, there's a number of things to consider. If you look at those 12 arrow design features, every one of those features that you incorporate improves the performance of your arrow. To get the most performance, you include more and more and more of them until you get everything included. Now, one of those factors in there is called a heavy bone threshold. And the heavy bone threshold depends only on the mass of the arrow. That's because bones have attachments that let them move, and they also flex. So the arrow has got to push on that bone long enough overcome any movement of it, any flex of the bone, before it even starts to penetrate the bone. And that is, is truly just a function of the weight of the error. And it turns out that the heavy bone threshold is right around, give or take a few grains, 650 grains. So the advantage of that, like on elk, is, uh, and I'll, I'll put in a plug for it, there's a real good book by Jeremy Johnson called Can't Lose Bow Hunting. And he's been using these arrow setups for a long time. He specializes pretty much in elk. But for the last several years, he's been deliberately taking these adverse shots right through both shoulders and uh, dropping, at, dropping elk in their tracks, shooting them in a rump, coming out through the front shoulder, shooting them in the front shoulder, coming out, breaking the femur, and exiting with complete error pass-throughs. And that's basically what he's doing. You're shooting 
errors set up along these design features to maximize the penetration of the error. You know, most people have this idea that when they lose an animal, 99% of the time they say, well, it was a bad shot. If you don't recover the animal, you have no idea why that shot failed. It's It's funny you bring that up. (laughs) It's only when you can examine the failed shot that you can find out what went wrong and you get a chance to find out why it went wrong. That's where shooting the freshly downed animals comes into it. You, you've got to get to the animal within 30 minutes being putting, put down because rigor mortis starts to affect the findings. If you go longer than that, you have some effect anyway, but it's not the effect you might think. Actually, when I compare research data against actual animals hunted, the penetration is higher in the living animal. That's because you've got a fresh blood-infused environment which lubricates the air shaft And the other factor is that the muscle tissue is under tension in a live animal. So it's like cutting a rubber band. It wants to retract. So it makes a larger, easier to pass through wound channel for a short period of time. So there there are some advantages to that. But when I I was looking at failed shots, and, and we actually found this starting even with a tall study, the number one reason for a failure for an error to be lethal is lack of penetration, hands down. Even on those ba- most of those bad shots, if you have sufficient penetration, now that penetration might have been stopped by a bone or something, but if you have sufficient penetration, the error stands a higher chance of being lethal. Right. No, that it's, makes sense. And, and people knew it long ago. You look back at Howard Hills hunting the hard way, He's got a statement in there, all else being equal, penetration is the name of the game. Right. No, for sure. And I mean, along my, you know, trials, tribulations down the road of bow hunting, um, I initially started shooting heavy arrows because that's all we had were aluminums, you know, 2219, 2315. And uh, then, you know, it went to, um, uh, you know, I carbons. Carbons came out and I shot. 400 grain arrow and a mixture of mechanicals and, and, uh, fixed blade broadheads, um, muzzies, normal stuff. And that worked great until it didn't. And, um, you know, you shoot a light arrow and, you know, all the, mo- the, you know, the, the difference trying to explain to people the difference between kinetic energy and momentum and, and which is big. I didn't, I had plenty of kinetic energy. I didn't have any momentum. And yep. so, more or less, all that ass I had behind the arrow shot right out the back. Uh, it's the easiest way I explain it, the redneck way. It just blows out the back of the arrow. There's nothing pushing it through. So I lost it because I, I had plenty of speed. And so I hit a big mule deer, and my arrow basically like it looked like it hit a two-by-four. Stopped, fell out, and I thought, well, that shit's not going to happen again. And so I started bumping my arrow weight and my poundage up. So I went from shooting 70 pounds and a 400 grain arrow. And then I started shooting 70 and a 480 up to five. And then I started shooting 80 pounds, um, up to 550, 600, 600, uh, 580 or anywhere in there on a compound, which was real. I mean, people looked at me like I had a horn growing out of my ass. Like they didn't, that was not normal. And, and people would ask. And I said, well, I take, 
whatever shot I can get, and it assures me to to get to the goodies. And I've taken a lot of elk with frontal shots and and slightly cornering too, splitting that shoulder, um, you know, where I'd find the arrow had passed all the way out the back of it or penetrated from the inside out. It'd be poking out the rear quarter. Um, the other thing I found in, in, in all the time doing this with a heavier arrow, speed didn't matter unless it was over, what, 1,100 feet per second or whatever the speed of sound is. A quiet bow is what mattered. In a heavier bow arrow I shot, you know, no, no scientific data needed. My bow was quieter. And that was a huge difference. And I thought, well, who, I mean, I use a range finder anyway with a compound nowadays. I don't hardly shoot anything without one. I mean, I, I, I'll shoot some, but the speed wasn't as big of a deal. And I didn't need to worry about the animal getting away because my bow was quieter. And what, as, as going down through this and you'll laugh, I shot an arrow, I shot an elk. It's probably five years ago now, um, where this was the components came in. I drilled, I shoot kind of into the shoulder on, on elk. I don't shoot where a lot you of guys do. Triangle. Well, I, I just learned what that's called, but I learned that about, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, or whatever it was. And I started shooting them in the shoulder, um, not in the bone, but like you say, the magic triangle. And I shot in that magic triangle, maybe an inch off towards the, towards the head or the knuckle, and what I would have passed through with good components and ripped right through it, all my momentum snapped at the insert. Uh, and, uh, man, I was pissed. I was like, what? It, I mean, an inch off of where I aimed, where I would have normally blown through it. And I was shooting about 84 pounds, and I was shooting a 578-grain arrow. Should have just destroyed that elk. Went right through it. That's like, why structural integrity is the number one factor. Well, I learned that the hard way. Nothing else matters. (laughs) When the arrow fell out, I thought, what the fuck just happened? You know, I got up there and had blood because I, I, and it was a mechanical. I was shooting a a big cutting diameter uh, mechanical. And I got up there and the arrow was just laying there and uh, insert was broke. And then I had a good blood trail, followed the blood trail. And then there was, you know, coagulated blood and a broadhead laying on the ground. It worked its way out. And I thought, man, this this shit ain't cutting it. Like, I need to do something different because um, no matter how strong that arrow was, I lost everything in the the components. And and so kind of a lot of what um, I still – don't yell at me. I still haven't bought off on crazy, crazy heavy front of center. I like a heavy arrow up front. But just through trials and tribulations – when I started reading your stuff a couple weeks ago or a month ago, I'm like, yep, found all that out the hard way. Yeah, no, that makes plenty of sense. And, and, and now with the internet being the way it is and people being able to learn with a click of a button, how, like when you talk about, you know, the different first, you know, second, third of importance or whatever, the component side of things, how, like, how quick did you start to look at, like, on components, how fast that can destroy your penetration? And, and what did you kind of find in your in that? Structural integrity comes out in the, in the tall study. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the get-go, it was obvious that if you, if a broadhead bent, broke, shaft broke, anything, you know, broadhead adapter, anything that broke, it didn't matter. Nothing else mattered. Your shot was ruined. That, right. that was clear from the very first thing. Now, it took a lot of years to get all the factors in there 
and figure out why they worked and what makes them work and how to get them to work. <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, like with, with, uh, the different types of broadheads, you know, we, we, uh, you know, the, obviously heavy arrow is important. Good components, important, um, cut on contact head. You like a single bevel, um, talk a little bit about the, um, I guess it, the three to one, the one inch wide, three inches long. What, what did you I find with that, that? Yeah. People pick that up. That, that's somewhat of a misnomer, but it is mechanical advantage, which the higher the mechanical advantage the more work it can do with the energy that's available. That means the more tissue it can cut, the deeper it can penetrate, the more bone it can break. Uh, so it makes higher mechanical advantage, makes maximum use of what is available there. Whatever energy momentum is the type of energy we're talking about here, the air of force you've got, that's going to maximize the amount of work you can do with it, the higher the mechanical advantage. Now, what we did find when I was doing the heavy bone threshold testing is that we had a hundred percent. Well, maybe I need to go back to heavy bone threshold first because people don't understand it. The heavy bone threshold, like I said, is right around 650 grains. Now, that doesn't mean it's 650 grains. Every structurally intact era is going to breach a heavy bone. What it means is that that mass, there is a sudden jump in the frequency of penetrating heavy bone. So if you've got a real poor bone performance broadhead, it might jump from 6% breaching rate to 12%. But on your best performing era setups, it will jump from somewhere in the 50-60% range when it's below threshold weight to 100%. The mechanical advantage that made that jump was 2.6 or higher. Right. Now, breaching the bone, the heavy breaking the heavy bone threshold does not necessarily depend on that single bevel as much as it does the force. You can take a double bevel and it will tend to push through there. It's just that the single bevel does it by going in, penetrating. I don't know the distance it has to penetrate the bone yet. That's something that's still got to be researched. But it pops the bone because of the opposing pressure on the single bevels. It just pops the bone apart, which instantly drops any resistance of the bone to the air passing through. So you get much higher post-breaching penetration with a single bevel as opposed to a double bevel. Right. No, that makes sense. Um, Same thing with extreme FOC. It has absolutely zero effect on breaching the bone. That is totally dependent on that error mass being at that heavy bone threshold or above. Now, when I rated the factors, I've got them rated 1 through 12. Uh, error mass above the heavy bone threshold is all the way down at number 12 because it does, it's not important unless you hit heavy bone. But when you hit heavy bone, it generally jumps up to about number three. Yeah, no, that's so definitely been the my finding. will change depending on the type of hit, right. except for the, yeah, except for about the first three or four factors. They're 
You know, the first factor is the structural integrity. And the second one is air of flight, which is that's your enabler. That give, if you've got perfect air of flight, it makes the most efficient use of the force you've got there. And that force, you lose less of it to fly to the air. So you've got more air of force to work with when it hits the animal. And right. then the other factors just make better utilization of that force. So the factors tend to compound each other. Right. So if you've got, you know, perfect air of flight and structural integrity fails, it doesn't make a bit of difference. All you got is a perfectly flying crappy air. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And I've, I've had perfectly flying crappy arrows go through animals and, uh, in that on the way to learning. Um, no. So when you, um, just because I, I've, I get tons of questions and I want to make sure, and what you just said is, 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 uh, definitely explained a lot where the, uh, as you go through the, the, tw- the, the, the 12, um, in order, depending upon the hit, they shift, which makes total sense. Um, whether you hit muscle, uh, heavy bone. Now, when we were talking about the heavy front of center and the total arrow mass, explain how that's going to change depending upon hit. So let's say just somebody shooting a relatively, uh, you know, it's a female, um, a relatively light arrow, or excuse me, a light poundage bow. Um, they're going to need the momentum. They're going to need the heavier arrow. When does it shift or when does it make a difference to have that really heavy front of center uh, compared to just a heavy arrow? Everything being equal except the the weight of the arrow is less grains per inch and the tip's heavier or the tip's lighter and the grains per inch of the arrow's heavier, if, if I made any sense of that. Okay. Regardless of arrow weight, if you have two arrows that are the same, but one has high FOC, you know, extreme FOC or ultra extreme FOC, and the other one has normal FOC, say it has 14% or 15%, mm-hmm. uh, the extreme FOC era will penetrate deeper through soft tissues. It won't have an effect, like I said, if it's a light arrow below heavy bone threshold, it won't have any effect on breaching the bone. But if you're, take those two arrows and they're both above heavy bone threshold, when they breach the bone, the extreme FOC will penetrate significantly further than the normal FOC arrow. These are two absolute identical arrows, same broadhead, same shaft diameter, same weight, both tuned, everything identical. With the exception, and of course, we're not taking off one shot because you can't get, you know, one shot to be exactly like another. You have to take a lot of shots and compare the averages. But when you when you look at that, what you find with extreme FOC is rare in outcome-driven studies because you get a hundred percent frequency. There is no question that it makes a huge difference in your average penetration. So anytime you can boost the FOC, is to your advantage to do it. Gotcha. Now, next question, um, and I'm we we just did five podcasts in a row talking about this, where we different broadhead companies, different guys with a lot of animals under their belt, um, and one of the big questions has that has come up is is arrow flight when you talk about with heavy front of center 
Um, and if the arrow is flying or porpoising, let's say, because a will, lot. Of, go ahead. I'm sorry, it won't be extreme FOC errors because you have a lighter rear shaft. The impulse of the oscillation is much less and it stops quicker and you can prove it with paper tuning. Mm -hmm. I can take a longbow that has no error shelf on it. Error has to bend a lot. With an extreme FOC setup, I can get it shooting a bullet hole at one yard in front of the bow, and you can back up one yard at a time, and it will do it as far as you want to back up. It is out of paradox within one yard if you have a well-tuned extreme FOC error. Now, if you don't, if it's not well-tuned, it's not going to do that. It's got to be perfectly tuned. Like anything else, you've got to get, tuning is important. Error flight is the number two factor. And you spend whatever time and money you have to, to get that perfect error flight. And, and that's, that's what, that's kind of the, uh, the, what I'm getting at is the, the arrow flight portion of it. If you're sacrificing arrow flight to get heavier front of center. No, don't improve arrow flight. It, it, okay. Take an airplane. If you want an airplane stable, you move the FOC forward. If you want it maneuverable, you move it back closer to neutral. Take the F-23 Raptor. It, uh, it flies almost sideways. It has a neutral FOC, highly maneuverable. So maneuverable, a human cannot fly it without computer assist. It's impossible for a human to do it. If you take most other planes, they want to be stable in flight, but it takes more effort to change the course of the flight. Right. So you're, you're getting more stable flight the further you get the FOC forward. And you don't get all this shaft flex, and you get less flex on impact, too, which is, you know, I tend to call that impact paradox. On impact, think of it like a pole vaulter running down there, and he puts that pole in the box, in the front end, and stops. My arrow might not stop, it slows down a whole lot more than the back end. Okay, if you've got a 200-pound pole vaulter, that pole's going to bend a whole lot more than if you've got a 100-pound pole vaulter. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens with an arrow. And you get the reverse of it on launch. Again, you've got to have it tuned. But if you've got it tuned, you get less paradox with extreme FOC than you do with a normal one. And you can prove that with a high-speed camera. Right. And that's, uh, I think you're missing my point a little bit is tuned. That is key because there's a lot of guys right now throwing 250 grain broadheads or, or points on arrows that they were shooting 100 grains and tuned with 100 before thinking that it's a fix-all. You have got to tune the arrow. You, you took a step backwards. That's why this yeah. The factors are rated like they are. You must have number one and number two. You must have structural integrity and you must have perfect air flight. Right. Those you have absolutely got to have. If you don't have those, it doesn't matter what the rest of the area is. It's not going to work well. 
Right. Yeah, and that that's kind of my point or what I was getting at is I want to make sure people understand is is we're talking about this and you're explaining everything. Don't forget the uh I guess it's the number one and two factors. You uh FOC is not a a, a cure all if you just throw a bunch of heavy weight up front, you have got to tune the arrow. The arrow has to spine out with the point. Yeah. You make it worse if you just throw a heavier point up there. If it's tuned with 125 or 100 grain point, and you throw a 200 or a 300 grain head on there, your tuning's gonna go all to hell. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and you're not going to have good arrow flight, and your everything's out the window. You've made your arrow worse, not better. Right, and and I was explain trying to explain that to to some guys that your penetration, and this is my experience, and I'm definitely curious to your opinion. When your arrow, if especially in high wind, so if you're if you're shooting in high wind and you've got heavy heavy FOC, and uh, your your arrow is is porpoising, um, you know, going through. The arrow hitting the animal sideways, from my experience, just crushes penetration. You have got to make sure if you're shooting that heavier front of center, you cut down. Because I shoot three five-inch feathers, and oh, God, yeah, and I've I've got some pretty um. Well, I've got different setups. I get a lot better arrow flight in the wind with two fifty up front. Um, and 10 and a half to 11 grain per inch arrow than I do with a nine grain per inch arrow and three plus up front. And it's because I have bigger feathers in the back and it'll make it, uh, porpoise easier in the wind, uh, because I got all that, I got more steering than I need in the back end. The, the last step when, when I give presentations or when I was able to on tuning the extreme FOC arrows. The last step is to tune your fletching. If you've got really high FOC with a field point on there, you can shoot accurately, and we've done it in shooting machines, as far as you want to shoot with no fletching, zero. And we're talking about when you're getting on up 28, 29, or higher. You you take the the primitive uh, errors they use over in New Guinea, I did a lot of research over there on their pre and post World War II era. They shoot errors that are from the high 30s up into the 40% FOC, unfletched. And they they routinely shoot at 25 yards or 25 meters and, and take animals uh, with no problem at all with these massive errors that aren't traveling 100 feet per second. They weigh 4,000 grams. <laughs> take a javelin. Yeah, that whole article, if anybody wants to look it up, it is online, but it's also in the Journal of Primitive Technology. Okay. And, uh, they can look it up and, and, you know, read the whole thing. It's too too long to go into all of it. But, uh, okay, once you've got that, that extreme FOC, like I said, if, if you've got the error tube, just the drag of the wind on the bare shaft will be enough to stabilize that error and fly it. And out of a shooting machine, you can shoot it accurately at any range you want to shoot it at. Now, once you put a broadhead on there, you've introduced wind shear. So you want the smallest fletch you can possibly use and overcome that wind shear. So you start out with, I prefer a feather fletch, and I like the A&A pattern fletch. 
and uh, get it as small as you possibly can. Uh, a lot of the compound shooters uh, can get by with two-inch fletches on the A and A with the extreme FOC errors because of the release. Be it a finger release, I had to go up to two and a half inches, and I even put uh, what's called a turbulator in front of it, which breaks up the laminar airflow uh, along the air shaft, increasing the pressure on the fletching, and that allows me to use even smaller fletching. So I want the smallest fletching I can possibly get on the back, and then I test it in the wind. Once I've got it and say, okay, this is doing fine on the targets, then then you go out and you shoot it into the wind, you shoot it with the wind, you shoot it across the wind, you shoot it quartering wind, every direction, to make sure it's enough to stabilize that air under every wind condition. If it's not, you increase the length of the fletching a quarter inch at a time, moving the turbulator up in front of it a quarter inch every time to get it where it will stabilize under all your shooting conditions. But any fletching in addition to that is just wasting air energy. So if you're going to all this trouble to get perfect air flight, to get as much of the stored energy the air as you can to the target, why waste it on excess drag? And like you said, all you get is a lot of wind drift and a crosswind. Yeah, and I do for sure. And I know on for me, um, the my coach um, that uh, you know when I first started shooting. Um, they're, uh, I mean, you might, Tom Clum, they own Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear. It's a big shop here in, in Colorado. He shot four and five inch um, feathers, you know, a couple 250 grains up front. That's how, you know, he got me set up. And, you know, that's the what I've been comfortable with shooting. And I, you know, over again, and I've only got whatever it is, 20 animals or something I've shot with the, the stick bow. And, uh, the one, the reason I kept them on there is, is the, uh, and it may be in my mind, the idea of stabilizing the broadhead on a bad release, um, or, or whatever that, you know, shit happens when you party out in the outdoors, right? Whatever might happen that it would stabilize it quicker. But with the, um, uh, the wind, it definitely obviously affects performance. Now with the heavier grains per inch arrow shafts, the wind, those fletches get affected less from what I found, um, compared to heavier point weight, lighter shaft where I need to just cut them down in the, in the back. And I, and I haven't honestly, cause I've been successful and I just too chicken shit to, to cut them down so far, but it, it makes total sense. Cause the arrow is getting pulled more than anything by that point weight, so to speak, I guess it, the arrows, po- the, the point weight's pulling the arrow and it's just steering it some in the back. What you have to consider with your fletching is that as you move the FOC forward, you've got two lever arms you're dealing with, a forward lever arm from the balance point to your point and a rear lever arm that is from your balance point back to the knock. The longer that rear lever arm becomes or the higher the FOC gets, the less fletching you need to exert the same amount of force on that air shaft. So that's one reason you can get away with these tiny, tiny fletches. You're still exerting just as much pressure, enough pressure to stabilize, to overcome any wind shear and your release. You know, when you're doing that tuning of it, that's why you don't shoot it just once. You shoot it and shoot it and be sure that it works under all conditions. And then you know, okay, I'm set. 
but you want to keep that fleshing as small as possible. And feathers are lighter, which gives me a little more FOC. And also the little A and A cut being so short and so stiff, we've actually taken them and stood them flesh in down in a bucket of water for 30 minutes, took them out, put them in the shooting machine and shot them against a dry shaft at 40 yards. They hit the exact same point of impact. There is no matting of the feathers. They're too short to mat down. That A&A cut is only a half inch high at its, you know, right at the back and it's a straight cut forward. Looks like rocket fans, which essentially it is. <laughs> right, right. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, with you, um, for when uh, we started talking about it earlier, like most um, compound guys get pretty freaked out. Not all, but some. When you start dropping that that uh, that speed down, and you you're increasing whether it be your FOC or your arrow weight, one or the other, you know their speeds dropping down. You know, for the most part, a guy with a, a compound and a 28 inch draw, let's say, shooting 70 pounds, and he's going to hunt whitetail, uh, elk, you know, all all animals in North America, minus maybe moose. Um, what would you say is a good? What What would you suggest um, for a good arrow weight to still have decent speed? Um, you know, overall, like if just walked up, somebody walked up to you at an archery range, what would your suggestion be? Well, unfortunately, I'd, I'd go pretty much what we've been through. What do you want the arrow to do? If you want to build in that safety margin of breaking heavy bone, or if you want to be able, like on deer, I shoot to put him down in his tracks. I break the front shoulder just like I would with a rifle. I've got you know, an arrow that'll take out a buffalo, will take out both shoulders of any deer. It'll just smash right through him. You drop him right in his tracks. There is no blood trail. He's down right there. That's an advantage you've got. It lets you shoot up closer to the shoulder. You don't have to worry about shoot behind the shoulder so you don't hit a heavy bone. If you hit a heavy bone with the right air setup, you, you just smash through that bone and right on down he goes. It just opens up a lot more shot opportunities for you. Yes, if you get, as you get into the heavier arrows, you have to give up a little distance. But, you know, I, of course, I hunted a little bit with compounds in the middle of my career, but most of my shooting has been with a longbow just because I prefer it uh, to hunt with and uh, sort of like a fly rod. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, and my typical arrow speed would probably be only around. 160 feet per second. Now, I traced twice. I did 150 consecutive animals, so 300 animals total. The average shot distance was 15.97 yards. Right. So most of the shooting is not real long. <laughs> you know, there are guys that take those long shots, but I don't care how fast your bow is. The animal can move faster. The human making normal hand gestures, moves his hand at about 250 feet per second. Now think of our speed and normal hand gestures against the speed and reaction of an animal. We don't have a bow fast enough to make up for the speed that an animal moves. It doesn't exist yet. Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to. Um, yeah, I don't think it's ever going to either, <laughs> not out of the bow. Yeah. Well, and, and that's so kind of... You can't guarantee where you're going to hit that animal. So I always try to recommended people if they want the best thing is to use an arrow setup 
plan for when everything goes wrong. Try to get everything to go right. But plan for an error that will perform when everything goes wrong. That's the whole basis just about of that book I was telling you about of the can't lose bow hunting. That's an excellent book for compound shooters. Uh, going through all this stuff with a lot of actual North American animal experience on shots. And uh, that's what it basically is. It's like a plan B error, an error that'll work when plan A falls apart. Murphy steps in and screws everything up. And he does that frequently. And, and he does that frequently. <laughs> so if I were recommending, I say, I'd say incorporate as much as you can. And if you want that, if you want to break heavy bones routinely, 650 grains. Now I don't, I don't badmouth people that don't do that. Any of those changes that they make is going to improve their era setup. And that's been my whole thing all along is reduce the wound loss rate. So if, if they did nothing but improve the structural integrity of the era, they would have a better era. They would improve, improve their success rate some. No, I, I agree. But, I agree. <laughs> yeah, but you put every factor in there to the maximum you can if you want maximum error performance. Now, the two places that becomes most important is the person that shoots light poundage bow and the person that hunts great big animals. That's where it's most important. But it comes in anywhere when you make that bad shot and you hit the humerus of a moose, that's a big bone. Right arrow setup, smashes right through it, right on through the lungs, dead moose. Yeah, and 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 I and just to make sure that people are digging what you're shoveling is we're you know we're talking about this when you get um, a, uh, a you know whether it be man you know female or male and they're shooting in that forty forty five pounds out of a of a compound bow and and definitely everybody worries about speed in this day and age which it is important to have a decent amount of speed obviously or as much as you can behind the arrow me coming from the compound world and kind of finding a mean median and mode of making everyone happy where they still got good speed um they're going to get good penetration they got good front of center is kind of trying to find out what um what boundary they're willing to go down to for speed and then once I know that boundary they're willing to go down to for speed, um, then I can start building their ORO for them pretty quickly. But when you get down to that 40, 45 pound mark, you're going to kind of have to throw speed out the window and just focus on momentum and penetration. And you're just not going to be able to shoot very far just flat out because um, even at plan A at 45 pounds, a mechanical, in my opinion, is not an option. Plan A is a cut on contact broadhead uh, with real good momentum and, and uh, you know, good front of center or, or heavier front of center. Um, when you get guys where it's a 28, 29, 30 inch draw um, out of a compound and they're used to shooting, you know, five to six grains per pound. And then they're looking into doing what we're talking about, where you're you're really beefing up your arrow weight, you're beefing up your front of center. Usually you want, for me, if they're, their lowest they want to go is 260 feet per second, I know just from that what their arrow weight's going to be from that 260 feet per second. Then I need to figure out, okay, if you're going to put two 250 grains up front, 
I'm going to know what spine arrow and break it down from there. And that speed thing, especially in today's day and age, is is huge on a compound. People just you don't want to they don't want to shoot slow. They just they they don't like 260 is a and, dog slow bow. Yeah, speed sales, and unfortunately, the archery industry has pushed that instead of hunting skills, which I'm not real fond of them for doing. And of course, they're not real fond of me either. That's beside the point. <laughs> but, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I tend to tell people, okay, if you know, what you have to do is look at what trajectory you can live with. Now, yeah, I was, you know, now I'm I'm shooting very slow arrows, and and uh, big animals. You know, I feel very comfortable with a thirty yard shot. Thirty yards is it. I'm not going to shoot further than that. Don't like to shoot further than that. I try for much closer. You know, that's that's I that's sort of a self imposed boundary out there uh for one thing it's you know when it, range estimation becomes hard unless you got a range finder which i normally don't have i just count them slipping up on him a little bit closer and most most all of my animals have been shot stalking too they have not been shot shot from blinds so you can get close to those animals but uh unfortunately very little emphasis is placed today on hunting skills it's all placed on using technology to make up for a lack of hunting skills i i i would agree with that um especially going from a compound to a to a stick bow where i had to and i i've i don't i've shot animals you'd probably kick my ass at distances you'd kick my ass for because i've shot them a long ways away with a with a compound it is definitely more exhilarating sneaking into a few feet than shooting one at 80 to 100 yards i i i'm addicted to shooting a stick bow but one of the things, without you yelling at me for shooting stuff far away, <laughs> I, I have found uh, <laughs> is that uh, the like you're talking about the speed thing. If you can in uh, kind of get your head wrapped around the fact that hey, stick even sixty yards is is considered somewhat close to some people nowadays. Yeah, and I know that's crazy, but if you can stick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I, I'm not speaking from the. From my time working as a PH, I, I saw an awful lot of animals wounded at longer ranges just because the animal took a leisurely step while the air is in the air. Right, and right. I, that's all it takes out there. Him just decide, hmm, that leaf looks good. I'm going to step over here and eat it. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, you know, they can get out of the way. And the thing is, is... um. I think people would find that, uh, and you know, as people are listening, this coming from a guy that shot animals well over a hundred yards away, that if you focus more, uh, one, obviously on, on your hunting skills, but two, on that momentum and penetration, um, the chances, um, you know, you can sneak up 50, 60 yards on just about anything that speed is not nearly as important at that distance, um, as you think it is, because one, the animal's probably not going to know you're there like they probably would at, at 23, 27, 31, where they might be more alert. 50's pretty far away. And if you've ranged them, done your job, you've got a quiet bow, you know, 50 and in, um, I can speak from experience and I, I haven't shot very many 650 grain arrows, but I've shot a lot at 600 grains and 580, um, 
yeah, you can shoot them in the high shoulder. They drop like a rifle. I would, of course, I was shooting, you know, 80 plus pounds with that setup. So a little bit different, but if the components hold together and you've got a good cut on contact broadhead, I shot a mule deer in Alberta last year. It went through the scapula on the onside, blew the offside leg apart. This is with a single bevel. Um, it's a, it's called a, a cutthroat. It's, it's, it's kind of like yeah, cutthroat. Yeah. I, it blew the offside leg in half and we never found the arrow. And that was a 580 grain arrow doing 280 out of a 80 some pound compound. I was amazed at the devastation. I've I've told that story to as many people who listen to it because I was like, look, I shot it purposefully dead through the scapula, the meaty part. And when it ran off, I'm like, did I miss it and shoot the offside leg off? And then it fell over. And I was like, well, <laughs> well, I hit something good. And we got up there. We tried to find the arrow. We couldn't find the arrow. And I blew the meatiest part between the um, elbow and uh, the knuckle. I blew that in half on the offside. And then you watch TV shows nowadays at 15 yards on a whitetail. They won't get a pass through. Oh, no, they'll, they'll get half the arrow or more sticking out. Oh, you know, and, on, the, on the impact side. <laughs> well, and, and, and guys have said I'm unethical for taking some of the shots I've taken, like a little bit cornering too. But when you're. Well, I've, I've had that too, but uh, it's gradually started to change because there's more and more people out there discovering what you can do with the right arrow setup. But I've been seeing that for, oh. Certainly, the last twenty-some years. <laughs> well, just getting into a, a stick now. Keep in mind again: if you would have known me in 2015, you would have kicked the shit out of me for some of the shots I've taken with a compound. And then, I, in 2016, I'm 40 yards from a bear in British Columbia, thinking, "Shit, this is a par two. I got to close half the distance at least to shoot this thing." That was a chip shot for me the year before, so it was a big eye opener for me. Yeah, you just got to get closer. This the the hunt starts at about forty yards, uh, where it ends with a compound at forty or or whatever. So, when I started putting arrows through animals with this stick bow, I shot an elk cornering two at like twelve yards in sixteen, and it was with a single bevel. It was with that cutthroat. I hit it a little high. Three quarters of that broadhead buried into the uh, vertebrae. I mean, it when we opened that animal up. And I've shot a lot of animals with the compound. It was an eye opener for me. I looked at it, I thought, holy shit. That is, um, I couldn't get the broadhead out for one. Like we had Leathermans and, I mean, three men and a small baby trying to pull it out. It buried three quarter of that broadhead. And this wasn't even what you would consider a heavy arrow. This was a 588, I think, grain arrow is what I was shooting, uh, 180 feet per second. But it penetrated what? as much as my compound setup would have, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years prior. And, you know, of course, animal dropped, I put a second arrow in it. But the devastation of a 180 foot per second arrow, a heavy one, was just, a, it was a real eye opener to me coming from a guy shooting a lot of mechanicals, uh, even at heavy arrow weight with that. Um, and the single bevel was another one. And I like both. I, I don't mind shooting double bevel broadheads at all. But that single bevel and what it does to bone is is just amazing to me. It does split bone like crazy. Now, obviously, you've shot an insane amount of stuff. What's some of the crazier stories you've seen as far as penetration goes where it even made you kind of take a step back and say, wow, holy shit, that was crazy? Uh, I'll, 
tell you what it ties just into what you were talking about too. In, in the one of the later study updates, when I was getting towards the end, I had been doing match sets of high and extreme FOC errors uh, with a number of different bows and collecting that doing you know doing analysis of these match sets of different weights and so forth. When I got through, I took a look and I took, uh, these are all shots from 20 yards on Buffalo, all into the ribs, because the Buffalo ribs actually overlap slightly. I had a hundred, these are all extreme FOC errors, structurally intact, set up to maximize penetration, all the factors I could get in there. Uh, I had 196 consecutive shots that reached the bone and at least fully traversed the thorax. 18% of those shots were taken with a 40-pound bare formula silver recurve. Dang. I know for a fact I can take a 40-pound recurve and kill buffalo all day long with it, with the right arrow setup. Yeah, well, and I, I'm hoping everyone's listening to that portion. Because, um, it, I mean, it, again, I, I try to be as, as open as I can to this uh you know, as I'm diving into the traditional archery game. And it, I think that compound guys, because of including me, I mean, you know, it's not like I popped out of the womb knowing all this. I'm learning along the way. Compound guys, a lot of them get really wrapped up on things that aren't as important and overlook because of how the industry is. And, and I'm, again, I'm guilty too, uh, not worrying about, what's most important and worrying about maybe more what's least important and speed to me came a lot more, a lot less important as time had gone on, uh, a quiet bow, a heavy arrow, like we talked about good front of center. Um, and the penetration was the proof, you know, as I'm shooting more and more and a Western hunter here, if you shoot three animals, you're kicking ass like a year, right? So it's not like you get a lot of practice. And if you make three perfect shots, you really didn't learn shit. You got to make three bad shots where you really learn. I hate to say that, but it's only the failed shots that you have a chance to learn something from. And (laughs) Oh yeah. And if you have, if you shoot good and your buddies shoot for shit, you're going to learn from your buddies, but you're going to learn. I mean, and you know, I had an animal, um, and this was a super heavy arrow. I was upwards of 600 grains and I had, had an animal spin on me and I went through the rear ham all the way up and I buried up into the front shoulder and it, and, and it was, it was basically broadside when I shot and I didn't know exactly where the hell I hit it when I shot. It was 40 yards away cause it spun so fast and I'm, I'm looking for the entrance hole up front cause it died. <laughs> Well, we found the entrance hole in its ass and I was like, and I was shooting a, a fixed blade broadhead and, uh, this was one of those animals where it wasn't too long after I'd switched to shooting real heavy. And I had 175 up front, so not extreme, but 18, 20% extreme nowadays, but I mean, not extreme. And, uh, this was one of the very few times where I had, uh, had had that high of front of center and it did well. Most of my bows on compounds were in that 11 to 13, 15%, but I was shooting a heavy arrow and heavy poundage. So I still had great success with that. Um, you know, but again, the light arrow mechanical 
thing, um, and I, you know, I've shot a lot of animals with mechanicals that people need to know, especially if you're going to shoot a mechanical broadhead, you've got to have a lot of ass behind that arrow for that thing to open and, and go through with, with, with low, with a low momentum, you can have sear and you probably, I'm sure you hate mechanicals. I would guess. Broadheads. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did a lot of testing with mechanicals when they work, they work fabulous. When they fail, they fail dismally. <laughs> Well, and on that, I mean, and, and as everybody's listening, so nobody bashes me later, I, I, I've shot a lot of animals with mechanicals. I, I had one failure, um, but the I was shooting extremely heavy weight and extremely heavy poundage, so I have an advantage that most people did did not. What did you find in your testing with mechanicals? They have the highest failure rate of any type of broadhead, and... When you get one thing you've got to watch with them, if you get at extreme angles, and I'm talking like 45 degrees or so, uh, it's not too uncommon to have one blade catch open in the air of cartwheel. Oh, I've had it happen. Had it happen last year. Yep. Yep. So and that's not not uncommon at all. Let Let's talk about the cartwheel effect. So what happens, and I've had this happen three times, not just to me, but I mean three times total hunting, with a lot of different mechanical broadheads, the, um, they'll have a longer ferrule and they will, they will basically open from the front back. So they'll have the little blade sticking out and then it opens it, pushing it backwards on, and it doesn't even have to be that extreme. If you want to practice, go shoot plywood, it'll do it on plywood. When it hits the the animal, that one blade opens and pivots the arrow and broadhead away from the animal, and it'll basically look like you're throwing a stick for your dog sideways. And you're going to wonder what the hell happened. Well, it pivoted off the it pivoted off the animal. Um, now, how much of that have you seen, and how much just straight up when you say failure, was it ferals, was it blades, or was it everything? Everything, blades, ferrules, the screw in, you know, every everything you can think of. And then, you know, I, I uh, had a friend living over in Georgia, and I was having him go around to all of the meat processors and told them any animal brought in this rifle kill that you find a broadhead in, I'll give you $5 for that broadhead. But if it's stuck in a bone, I still, I want the bone too, that it's stuck in. I found a number of mechanicals stuck in the bone that had not opened. Yeah. They don't always open. Oh, no, they, they don't. I, I've only had one fail on me uh, shooting them, but I've had friends that have had, um, had them fail. And they've gotten better over time. And, and I think what, um, uh, what, what happens is, um, I've said this before. God created uh, mechanical bar- broadheads for guys that can't tune for shit. Um, That's it. That's the only advantage I can see to them. <laughs> well, and and uh, one of the advantages I one of the reasons I like them is I like having a two to two and a half inch wide cutting diameter broadhead, and to do that out of a compound at two hundred and eighty feet per second, you're going to have to do it out of uh, you're going to have to do it with a mechanical. Um, the downsides to mechanicals being as, as candid as I can on, on my end is generally the broad head, the blades are, are not overly sharp. Um, 
not that many manufacturers do a great job. The ferrules are aluminum and they'll bend super, super, super easy. Um, and the blades will snap off because they're thin and they're long. Now, keep in mind, so I don't get bashed by chuckleheads later, I've killed a ton more animals with mechanicals than I have fixed blades. But I also just got into traditional archery and I'm learning some of the downfalls I didn't know about until starting to shoot traditional archery, meaning I got lucky a lot. I made a lot of good shots and those arrows blew through the animal and I didn't have to worry about plan B. And when I did hit plan B, my arrow was so freaking heavy and I was shooting so much poundage, plan B worked out pretty damn good too. The problem is most people aren't shooting real heavy arrows and they're not shooting real heavy poundage. So plan B is shit canned. If you're shooting 60, 65, even 70 pounds, and you're shooting a 420 grain arrow with a mechanical, plan B isn't really there, in in my opinion. So I had a huge advantage. Would you agree with most of what I'm saying, or what do you think yeah, about that? I, like I said, everything you do to that arrow that's one of those improvement factors improves it. So that heavy arrow, that definitely helped. Yeah. Oh, it pulled me out of a lot of problems. Um, just, just for the simple fact. And people would ask, why do you shoot so much poundage? That's stupid. You well, know, sort of tying into what we're talking about, if quiet bows, heavy arrows, things like that, if you'll have access to a chronograph, which I'm sure you do, uh, an interesting experiment is to find out what arrow weight is most efficient off of your bow. Now, this is where kinetic energy is applicable. Not for penetration, but it is applicable in determining efficiency of a bow. So what you're measuring is the kinetic energy gain as you go up in arrow weight, per grain arrow weight that you go up. And I did a lot of that looking at it. And now that you're into traditional, you've probably heard the rule of thumb 10 grains per pound of bow weight. Yep. Well, what, I, what I found was that with self-wood bows, like the old English long bows or any of the, the flat bows, any of the self-wood bows, the rate of gain of kinetic energy in the air transferred from the bow to the air begins to fall off dramatically at 10 grains per pound. But when you look at more efficient bows, say if I took a modern hybrid longbow or some of the more efficient recurves, that energy gain does not start falling off till around 14 or 16 grains per pound of bow weight. And on compounds, depending on the compound and the type of compound, it's even higher. And you can actually list, you can hear the difference as you go up those heavier errors. So if you want to take as every bit of the energy that you've got stored in that bow has got to go somewhere. Everything that doesn't go into that era goes into vibration and noise. So it's going to be hand shock, vibration of the bow, and noise. Now what's in the era sometimes become noise. Some of the era's energy is bled off as noise because the inner energy is, is totally different than, than momentum. Momentum is a straight line force vector. Energy is the total energy of it, which includes sound and vibration and every other 
thing that generates any kind of energy uh, to bleed off. But you will notice uh, quite a difference there. And, and this rule of thumb of 10 grains does not hold as you get to the heavier, but uh, the more modern traditional bows and to the compounds. So if you want to get the most out of your bow and make it as quiet as possible, you'll go up to that point. Now you'll still be showing a gain in kinetic energy as heavy as you can get the bow to move that arrow. You'll still be gaining kinetic energy in an arrow, but the rate of gain falls off. It's a near straight line for a long time, and all of a sudden it becomes a gradual slope straight line. That point where it breaks is your peak efficiency of an arrow absorbing energy from the bow. And you can take what, what I've found is that you take those modern bows, those modern hybrid long bows, or, or something like a Blackwood or Recurve, and you put that 14 to 16 grain per pound arrow on there, it shoots as flat as 10 grains per pound does on a self-wood bow. Gotcha. Yeah, and I, I would agree because I've been screwing around with a bunch of different arrow weights. It's pretty dang close. Um, it isn't the thing. One of the things I'm, yeah, uh, I use a, I shoot instinctive out to, I don't know, 30, 32 yards and I use a point on out to about 40 and I, I just don't plan on shooting any farther than that. But, um, the, yeah, what I did is instinctive out and after that it becomes gap shooting. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I, I just, I can grip it and rip it when it's inside of, you know, 30, 32. And after that, I kind of pay attention cause I'm up, you know, like on a, Oh, let's say an elk or whatever. Um, you know, I can kind of look in that pocket down there. Um, you know, I follow the leg up because I'm not really shooting that far off of the leg anyway. So it helps my I left and right. Go straight up the leg. Yep. <laughs> well, when you have that point on at 40, for me, I can really start to dissect how much efficiency or arrow drop I'm getting from a 570 to a 600 to a 650 grain arrow. And there is some drop, but it's not as much as I thought it would be in comparison to a compound. Um, because if, and in, in, in with a compound, you, every 10 grains per inch, you lose two to three feet per second, roughly. Um, but it gets less as you, the higher weight you get, you know, the, the less the difference become per grain. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when you get up, say, at 800 as opposed to at 850, won't be as much drop as a uh, 500 and 550. Right. And, I mean, there's probably 1% of the planet that's even fired an 850-grain arrow out of a bow. I mean, you know how it is nowadays. They're pretty light arrows. and But I, I encourage people to, to test it out. I mean— if you're shooting a seven pin sight, which a lot of people are nowadays, so an 80 yard pin, and you have to cut off two of those pins to shoot a 580 to 650 grain arrow, I think you would be surprised. Um, one, you need to work on your hunting skills to scoot closer anyway, but you would be surprised at the devastation if you go from shooting a 420 grain arrow even up to a 580, which is still light, and your your you know with your de your thinkings or dealings, your devastation is only going up when that arrow hits the animal. And 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 you said it best, you increase any of those those key factors, it only gets better. Um, you know, as it goes on, it just took me a while to learn it. The more you screw up, the more you learn. Now, what what do you like um, when when you when you were kind of 
just because I, I haven't I haven't learned about you as I'm as I much as I should have. What bow did you shoot most of the time? Were you a longbow guy or recurve guy or or what were you? What was your partial to? For my hunting, longbow almost exclusively, just because I enjoy it the most. Gotcha. Who's whose longbow did you like the best? Uh, the one that I shot for twenty some odd years is one I built myself. Oh, gotcha. Do you still have it? Uh, actually, I gave it to somebody. It's uh, hanging on the wall now. I've I got uh, some nerve damage in my right hand. I can't shoot anything now. Yeah. Well, I lost, I, yeah, the muscles are all atrophied. My thumb and index finger don't work. <laughs> well, sounds like you shot enough that it, you you're way ahead of everybody. So maybe you needed a timeout for the last few years to so <laughs> advise people on what what to do. The uh, you got it up in Alaska a, a good bit though, didn't you? I was uh, yeah with the military. I did two tours up in Alaska, so I hunted a lot up there, and then I was stationed. Uh, northern minnesota for 11 years hunted a lot there and then i was in north carolina hunted a lot there and uh down in arizona was stationed there hunted a good bit there uh and then in, in interspersed with that i started going to africa in 1975 and uh i've hunted a lot over there and and that's you know i i'm really more interested in the bone breaking eras for for Africa than in here because there they're even more important because those are true antelope and their lungs don't extend back of their shoulder like a deer. And that was one of the big problems we had with American hunters that would come over there. They'd still try to shoot behind the shoulder. Well, that's a gut shot on an antelope. Yep. And the only animal we've got in North America you've got to do that on is the mountain goat. He's a true antelope. And you've got to be, like you said, you come right straight up that leg through the shoulder. Yeah, I, I shot a goat last year, and I shot it straight through the the shoulder. Pretty, you know, pretty much um, for for that reason, just because I knew the anatomy. And and I, I I actually shot that. You know, I can't remember what I shot that with, but I shot it with a heavy ass arrow. And I got, I didn't go straight through it, but I went through both shoulders. I had two holes, but it was barely hanging on coming out of the other side. And, uh, yeah, it bled good. It was, um, I mean, you, you know, you learn something on every hunt you go on. One thing I learned there is I should have waited because it fell about 2,000 feet. And I thought I shot it in a good spot oh. where it wouldn't fall. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, that's That's another place where... That little bit heavier air that you can count on breaking heavy bone is real nice. Break his shoulders down and he's laying right there. Uh, I screwed up. If I I told my buddy I would have been better off, I should have high shoulder shoot it, shot it, and I hate to say this, or gut shot it and snuck up and shot it again. Not that you, I'm not condoning a gut shot, but it, it fell 2,000 feet, and if I would have gut shot it i mean truly it would have went over and bedded and got another shot and if i would have high shoulder shot it which i should have done it would have dropped it right there um instead i shot it what would be considered a 12 ring which was probably one of the dumber things i've ever done because it rate roll a little legitimately it went 2000 it went to the horses damn near it went so far down that mountain but what what's uh and i mean this is kind of a i mean i'm sure everybody hates this question but i'm curious what would you pick what's your favorite animal leaving africa out of it in uh, north america uh bears and pigs yeah how come down (laughs) yeah just they're the most fun to hunt 
Well, do you uh, do you like uh, like his bears from a young age, or was it just as you got older, the more you hunted them, you're like, oh, I like hunting bears, or was it something just at a young well, age you always were fascinated? You know, I've always liked it, but the more of it I did, the better I liked it. That's why I was curious if it, it got more Shoot of an addiction. Bears was great fun, and then hogs were just God's gift to the bow hunter. Uh, that's the animal you take a kid out to learn how to stalk on. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I bet. When's that? When with your nerve damage was that from your fall or did that happen recently? No, that was I had uh, a bunch of neural sit neuromas mm-hmm. cyst on the nerves, and I had one on my right thumb and one on my right elbow and one on my left uh, middle finger and one on my left foot. And they've all had to be surgically removed, but the ones on my right hand damaged the nerve going to my thumb and index finger. How long ago did that happen? Oh, four or five years ago now. Yeah. Well, you, back, so that was, but that pretty much ended everything. <laughs> but you got to hunt up until that point just about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. How long? I um, a little time off there while after my back was broke. <laughs> you guys didn't say how long were you off from that? Wow. <laughs> yeah. What? I, I kind of interrupt you. I apologize about that. How long were you off with your back injury? Uh, it took me four months to be able to get back to the states, and then uh, uh, a couple of months to get the surgery. Yeah. What so, happened with that? Oh. It, it, just one of those dumb things. I literally, uh, down in New Zealand, of course, in South Island, west side, it rains all the time, just like it does coastal Alaska. And uh, all the houses there have mud rooms. Between the mud room and the house, they usually have a little concrete barrier. Well, I was visiting some friends there, and I walked in through the mud room and stepped across the barrier and hit the linoleum in the kitchen. Feet went out from under me, and my back came down across about a five-inch high concrete barrier. Oh, dang. And it took, uh, oh, I've got about, oh, 16 inches of steel rods up my spine with a whole bunch of screws. It took them seven and a half hours to get all the bone chunks out. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, that's horrible. But are you moving around pretty good now, though? Uh, I can't stand or walk very long. I uh, The back will start to hurt, so... I have to use a cane to walk with, just to take pressure off that. I'd walk without it as long as I don't have to go very far or stand very long. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, I'm getting old and falling apart. Eh, it just comes with age. <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds like well, you've earned it. Um, it's <laughs> You've led one hell of a life. And I, I was talking to a buddy. I said, I feel kind of like an asshole not having read that much. But then I thought, well, I'm kind of glad I haven't so I can catch you greener than hell and ask all these questions that I may not have if uh, – I, I read. Uh, yeah, I just had some heart surgery week four last, and I'm going in week after next for more. So yeah, it doesn't end. There's always something going on. <laughs> I do, I do enjoy the doctors always ask you about injuries and stuff. And I've got all these weird things because I've both knees have been replaced. I tell them, well, one was you know typically was a high school football injury. The other one was crushed by a kudu. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and they say, what? And then they look at, I've got a lot of discoloration on my right foot or right ankle. And they say, well, you know, what's, what's all this? And I said, well, that was a funnel web spider bite down in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Man, how bad did that screw you up? Because those, oh, those are horrible. Yeah, he's the worst of all the, he's the spider most likely to kill you. 
How uh, how much did you? How long were you down from that? And how quick did you know it oh, was uh, that's, from that? That's been about uh, about two weeks just laying there before I was able to do anything. I was a pretty sick puppy, and my old right leg swelled all the way to the hip, and foot and ankle and all turned pretty black. I was out in the middle of nowhere, way up northern Queensland, a uh, good ways out from a little town called Weep, but just out in the middle of the bush. In uh, middle middle of nowhere, but I try had everything with me I needed to to try to treat it. But uh, and I tried to keep a a journal of it just so, and that was more to make sure I was still cognizant of everything that was happening. There wasn't anything else. But uh, I had some ciprofloxacin round for antibiotic, and I had some prednisone, and I had uh, antihistamines and. Uh, mixed up a lot of universal rehydration fluid and kept pumping that in myself. That got me through. Huh. How, what, do you have a bad fever for like, you know, oh, how long, yeah. how bad was your fever? I guess for how long? Uh, the fever got up to 103. No, almost and a hallucination level. Then. It was there for several days up around that 102, 103. And I was worried that, you know, you start getting up 104, 105, you're looking at neurologic damage. Yep. Did you hallucinate at all, or or no, do you remember? No, I never hallucinated any. Yeah, I yeah, that's bad juju, man. Dang, huh? Where? How many? Who was with you? Uh, uh, Cher Lacey was with me. One of the ladies I know down in Australia. She was up bow hunting with me. What was that? There was another guy up there. I don't remember what his name was. Anyhow, I told them carry on hunting. Wasn't nothing they could do for me. I just lay there. <laughs> they just come just check on you up. every day. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they go out and hunt every day. And, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Huh, that's pretty, pretty wild. What, uh, any, uh, just cause we're, we're hitting over an hour and a half. What, uh, anything, uh, like, uh, like, I, I guess specific hunts that you've been on that just stick out in your mind more than others. Um, you know, that, yeah. uh, there's too many. I, I could spend hours talking about those, but uh, I guess the the two white rhino were probably they're the only two that's been taken by a traditional bow hunter, and I think there's only one been taken by a compound shooter. Uh, so not not many of them have been taken, and those were both taken in conjunction with the research project down there. And uh, the first one was you know pretty straightforward and. Uh, but the second one, uh, we dropped off trackers, and there was nobody there but Chris Freeman and I. And uh, there was one rhino, real big body, uh, but he was a dehorned rhino and had, oh, about four inches of nub there. Probably weighed, well, well over 6,000. And uh, every time we'd see him, he's always this same valley. And we'd try to get a stalk on him, and he would cross the valley and go out through this little notch in the mountains. And uh, we came across there that day, and we saw him down there after the glass a little bit. Chris said, why don't you go up in that little notch, you know, see if you can find a place up there and get, uh, get set up. And I'll give you about 30, 40 minutes, and then I'll start trying to do a real slow, slow stalk on him. And he'll probably do just like he's done every other time. This sounds like a good plan. 
So I went up there, and as I got up in there, this I started walking up through there, and this got narrower and narrower and narrower. Finally, just before it opens up in a, in a plateau up there, it got down to where it was about maybe eight foot wide, nine foot, no, I mean, yeah, something like that, from wall to wall, and it went up at a steep angle on both sides. And there were two trails there, one right down in the bottom, and one about three foot up on one bank. So I looked there, and all the tracks are in the bottom. So I got up on the top one up there and thought, man, he's going to walk right by me when he comes through here. And I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting and waiting, and pretty soon I hear rocks rolling. can hear him coming. Of course, don't want to move, so I just cut my eyes around to the right. Sure enough, here he comes, but he was on the upper trail. And my mind just went blank. To this day, it was just blank. I, it's just one of those, there's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm here. And he got about 20 yards from me, and he dropped down and got on the bottom trail. And crossed by, and, and I shot him, and he ran out there. And, you know, we, we got him. He ran a ways, but we got him. And uh, when we got through, I measured from... Well, after Chris got up there, I measured from my footprints to his, and it was seven feet. Oh, dang. <laughs> did you have you shit running down both legs, or did you hold he, it together he, pretty he, good? Yeah, he's about six and a half feet at the shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his back is already up to my belly button. <laughs> you hold it together pretty good, or did you freak out? Oh, after I shot him, you know, it dawned on me what I'd done. I thought, this is not the smartest thing. I've ever done in my life. I that's about the only animal I've ever shot that I literally had the shakes when it was over. Because it if he'd have kept coming, I, I had nowhere to go. He had me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That sounds crazy. What about the other one? Uh the other one's pretty straightforward stalk. There were two bulls together. And uh Spud Luddingham, who was head of the tall parks board, was with us with, with Chris and I. And we uh we spotted her, made a stalk in there, and I shot it at 18 yards. And uh, <laughs> and I wish I had the photograph. Spud's back behind us. He stayed a few yards back. And I get up here to shoot it, and he got a photograph. I'm at full draw, ready to shoot. And Chris Freeman has got his fingers in both ears. Because all he's ever done is got <laughs> gun, gun hunts. Gun hunts, yeah. <laughs> Oh. Anyhow, that one that one ran away, and we followed it up, and uh, it was still standing, dead on his feet, but it didn't know it. And I shot it a second time, and took one step and went down. Huh? What did, what was your setup for that one? Uh, that was a hundred and fifteen pound long bow, twelve hundred eighty six grain arrow. Just out of curiosity, because I've only seen a couple pictures of you. How big were you back then? Were you a pretty beefy guy? Because that's a shitload of weight. Uh, not, not like I am now. I was, uh, oh, maybe 200, 210 pounds. Huh. I had, you know, I shot heavy bows most of my life. And, uh, I, I, as it turns out, I've got a bone deformity in my right hand. I've also got it in both feet, but I didn't know it was in my hand. I only discovered that after I was in the air force, they discovered it, but, uh, I always had a real bad release. Well, we hunted on the first archery-only deer lease in Texas. It was set up by Bob Lee. 
and uh, Fred Bear came down and hunted with us. Ben Pearson came down and hunted. And Ben Pearson told me, look, said, what you want to do is you're a big kid. Said, you work up bow weight. I think at the time I was shooting 55 pounds. He says, you work up in bow weight. You want to shoot the heaviest weight bow you can draw. You don't want a bow with fast limbs. You want a bow with real heavy physical weight limbs and not real fast. And he said, you shoot that and you concentrate on your follow through. It doesn't matter how bad your release is, you'll hit. And he was right. It got to the point, literally, I could draw back and I could pull my hand three inches out from my face, turn loose, still hit the target. <laughs> well, that's good. The, the, the heavy limbs just pull the string back into line long before the air is off the bow. As long as you've got that solid follow through. And from there, I just kept on shooting, you know, heavy bows and working up. And uh, when I went over to do that rhino, I could hold that 115 pound and pull draw for a time 30 seconds and then get off a aim shot. Yeah, so that's up to it. That's solid work. Um, well, I had one heavier bow that I used for uh, a training bow and I, I would go out and shoot a few shots with it. And after it, that 115 felt pretty light. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, it's crap. I shoot sick. Well, 58, 59 now. And most people consider that heavy nowadays, which really down here, I mean, there's no animal. I'm not going to blow through down in, in the lower 48 for the most part. I, if I shot hunted moose, I'd bump up everything a bit, but elk and, and mule deer, whitetails, bears. I mean, I zip right through everything pretty, pretty easily. So I can't imagine shooting double the weight. I mean, I'd do it if I had to, I guess. Jesus, that had to been horrible on your fingers. No, actually not, not bad at all. Although I did have pretty solid calluses. That, uh, that bow that I shot so much, Lady, uh, the one that I built, she was 94 pounds and uh, sweetest shooting bow I've ever owned in my life. She has a rare record, at least I think it's pretty rare. She took 300 animals and never lost one. I don't know if any other bow's ever done that. Well, that's a lucky lady, or you're lucky, one or the other. Yep. That's pretty damn solid work. <laughs> uh, she, she's good. I shot that bow so long that when I picked it up, I had absolute confidence I could make the shot every time. It just, and, and confidence is a lot of it. You know, it's just one of those things that when you know you're going to make the shot, you seem to make it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're only good as your last shot. So if your last shot was shitty, your next one's probably going to be pretty bad, too. But you're right, just because I'm screwing around with different bows. I've had I'm shooting Black Widows right now and I I'm just confident in them. I just durability. I hit with them and it's hard. I mean, I shoot other bows really well. I just am confident in that bow. And I like the guys over there. Uh, Have you shot those for you like them? Oh, yeah. But Black Widows, uh, excellent, excellent bow. Yeah, she uh PSA, it's sixty two inches long. And uh yeah, I just I, I got a cut actually I just had them made have them build me a third one. I'm one of those one bow, one arrow, one setup kind of a guys. I don't like screwing around too much. So once I get dialed in, it's pretty hard for me to to switch from from what I'm using. Uh just because I like to get so comfortable with it, which sounds like you're kinda we're kind of the same way and at a much greater depth than, than I am. How long did you shoot that bow for? Oh, probably, let's see, when did I build that? Uh, about 22, 23 years. 
Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> it held together the whole. So is that is that the one that's hanging on uh, the guy's wall? Yeah, yeah. When uh, when I had to leave Africa, I was based in Zimbabwe, and right after the U.S. Congress passed that Zimbabwe Democracy Bill. Yep. Mugabe's uh, retaliation was to kick all the Americans that didn't have permanent residency out of the country. And I got caught on the first day and had 24 hours to leave the country. So I got out with my rifles, my binoculars. Well, they made me carry the rifles out. My binoculars, one change of clothes, and lost everything else I had. Vehicles, house, you know, all my hunting kit, everything. And my bows all stayed there. But uh, some friends went in there and, and managed to get Lady out. Well, you know, take them with her. And then eventually they managed to ship it to me, but it got a, a crack in, in one limb right up at the tip. And so I had to put overlays and underlays, pretty heavy ones on the tips, pretty thick ones, and to strengthen it. And then I had to retail her after that, and that brought her down to 82 pounds. And I shot it some after that, but I decided, nah, it's just time to hang her on the wall you know, let her be there for what she is. She didn't even have an arrow shelf on her. She's got a, a peg rest on the side made out of a piece of sheep horn, which is a big advantage when you're trying to tune EFOC arrows. The further you can move from the center, weaker spine arrow you can use, lighter the shaft weight. <laughs> right, yeah. No, and I found that both my widows cut inside a center and I shoot off the shelf. So it takes a pretty stiff spine to... Uh, you know, mm -hmm. arrow to begin with, which, you know, I'm, I'm right now, I've got, I've got a 600 grain arrow, um, uh, set up and I've got a 588 grain arrow set up. And, uh, and then I've got one that's, I've been screwing around with mostly to see if my accuracy changes with crazy FOC. Um, I think I'm at 28% and that arrow is 680 grains, I think. And oh, I've been, That'll be a sweet air at twenty eight percent. That's that's good FOC as long as you got her tuned. Yeah, no, it's tuned. It's shooting. It, now my my point on is obviously quite a bit uh, closer, but I can still group with it. So I've been going back and forth, and the two arrows that I shoot the best, the one's five hundred and eighty, and it's it's a heavy arrow with two thirty up front, and it's only. 17% and then that uh, 680 grain arrow and both of those fly or I say fly both of those group extremely well and uh, I kind of set up the heavier one just to see because I shoot so well with uh, the well it's low, I say lower it's not very low in this day and age but the the 18% FOC arrow just to see which one I shoot better with um, well, you're not gaining FOC advantage. When, when I was doing the FOC testing, I could not measure any increase in penetration that I could attribute to FOC uh, until I reached 19%. So it only starts at 19%, giving you this penetration advantage. Gotcha. And then it goes up. And, and the rate of gain goes up. The higher the percentage, the more percentage-wise rate of gain. In other words, if you go from from 26 to 27 percent, the percentage increase in penetration will be higher than if you went from 20 to 21. Right. And it just it's going up. As far as I was able to test, it was only 31 percent. But it, it was still doing that there. And I've got friends now that are shooting arrows uh, up in the 40 percent FOC, and they're getting uh, just phenomenal penetration. I mean, just things that just blow my mind. 
Oh, I got uh, the guy. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Valkyrie or Valkyrie, uh, Brent Hahn. I shoot his system up front um, and it drives him crazy because I don't worry about FOC as much. And I put a wrap on the back of my arrow and, you know, being I, I've had good luck killing stuff with the setup I got. And, and he is like, you're losing a percent. And I'm like, man, I don't really care. It groups good. And I don't. <laughs> And it drives him crazy. He's like, do you know how hard it is to get that 1%? I'm like, well, <laughs> it, but it's two different schools of thought. And I'm sure I mean, you can, I guess, appreciate her. When you go with what you know and you've had success. Um, hey, if it works for you, nobody can, you know, there's nothing you need to change. Well, and that's what I was, you know, telling them. And I mean, with uh, me having a point on it at 40, and shooting super well at instinctively out to whatever, 30, 32. Oh, and I've got five-inch feather, three five-inch feathers off the back, which hit, that drives them crazy as well. But, man, I, I'm confident with that, and I honestly, I don't want to change. Like, I everything I shoot at, I, I not everything, but, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very effective with that. I get good penetration, and I, I just haven't had an issue. Now, if I was hunting something different than North American game and I, and I haven't had the luck I've had, you know, it'd probably be a different story, but the confidence thing for me, and that's what I tried to explain to him was, look, man, I'm confident with this setup and it is, it, it does very well penetrating and it's hard for me to switch, uh, because of that, because of how the system's set up and I'm comfortable with it. And it, it does, it bugs the shit out of him. Um, he's actually the podcast before yours where I talked with him about it. Um, you know, just the different, um, what do you want to call it? Um, people have different theories um, of what's important and what's not. And and really, you know, you get down to it, the biggest thing is learn how to freaking hunt. That's the important part. Get close. Well, if um, you can get close enough, it sure helps. Mm-hmm. And I, went, I was talking about those those uh, tribes in, in New Guinea. And uh, they, when steel became available, which was post-World War II, they changed the era, which required them to change totally the type of bow they used. It's a really interesting article to read, but uh, went out with, they tend to hunt with three people. For whatever reason, most primitive tribes in the world carry three arrows each. But anyway, we went out to shoot a rooster deer out, this bald open, nothing but rolls in the ground and grass. And uh, it took them about two and a half hours to get one. But uh, the guy that shot it, only one of them shoots, even though three of them stalked him. And the arrow he used out of his three was a little over 4,000 grains and about 42% FOC. Like I said, no fletching on him. 25-yard shot. And uh, when he got through, because he had three arrows, the other two were lighter arrows, and they were down in the 30%, you know, 32, 36%. FOCs, uh, they were down 3,000 grains, 3,200. And uh, I asked him why he picked that error. He had the best answer I've ever heard. Just two words, works best. <laughs> yeah, that is a very good two words. <laughs> and, and interestingly enough, now they don't know any of this technical stuff. There's a bowyer there in the village. He makes all the bows. And he's got an assistant. He sits there carefully. Keep stringing those bows up, looking at them, having him draw it. Then he'll take it down. He'll work on it, work on it, work on it. But then when they build up their arrows, of course, they're using hand-hammered points made out of rebar, 
humongous spear points, you know, 14, 16 inches long. And uh, they will take those arrows, put them together, and then they tune each arrow just like we would. They start shooting it, and then they start shortening it. They start out with a weak spine and shorten the shaft till it shoots right. And they do it with each of their three arrows. And then a lot of them have an extra arrow that's a blunt, and then they'll have one crocodile arrow. And uh, that's usually all they've got. Yeah, that's that's crazy compared to you look at North America right now or, uh, you know, anywhere really in, in the world with uh, the compound. Uh, I mean, hell, I go in with seven. I got six broadheads and one stumper. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just what I'm comfortable with. With what would you uh, if you were going to give advice just because we got to cut this thing off here and, and hopefully I can get you back on. But if you were going to give advice to whether it be a new hunter or somebody that's been hunting a while, what what would your uh, what would your advice be to them, whether it be arrow setups or anything in general? Find some old codger like me and learn how to hunt. That's the kind of people I learned from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these that's... old guys were just, you know, they they were happy to take you hunting, but boy. They, they, you did something wrong, and every sentence would start out, now, that means you better listen. You're going to tell you one time what you did wrong, and they expect you to do it right after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who, uh, uh, people for you, like uh, you said you had old codgers to learn from, who were, uh, who were some of the more pivotal people for you? Well, uh, James Hayes was one of them, and... Uh, he was a World War II vet in New Guinea, and we got to hunt together with a bow. I was in high school, and James, of course, quite a lot older, but uh, we were the only two people in the county that uh, shot bows. So we could shoot a bullfrog and get on the front page of the paper. Lord, James shot a shot a bobcat one night when we were varmint calling, and uh, it, it filled up the whole front page of the paper. You'd have thought he killed Bigfoot. <laughs> then when I got over to Africa, my my great friend uh, Gordon Cormack, who was the last of the old time professional hunters, actually he started when they were professional white hunters, is what they were called. Uh, never had a job in his life other than a short stint in the Rhodesian forces, and about eighteen months in the British South Africa police. Uh, all he'd ever done was hunt. And uh, he was an animal color on Neonetsi, which was 5.4 million acre, largest private-owned ranch ever in the history of the world. And uh, they were shooting for the meat market then. And then he got into, you know, guiding professional hunting, and he was a uh, founding member of the Slew Scouts. And uh, a marvelous, marvelous tracker, hunter, store of outdoor knowledge, and... He is the one that gave me my PhD in how to do it. I just, I learned so much from him, but he would drive you nuts because he could talk for six hours on the sex life of the dung beetle. You know, anything that came up, it didn't matter. He knew everything about the bush. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> he was born and raised at Tanga Tanganyika. And his trip went to his first day of school he went by himself, and it was a five-day trip. He had to go all the way to Uganda to go to school. It involved, a, you know, it involved an oxen cart and 
a boat crossing the river and some walking and a train trip and more walking and <laughs> Gee, I can barely barely get my daughter out of bed. <laughs> oh, he's a fascinating guy. He he died what two thousand and seven, and uh, I still have a remembrance ceremony for him. He he died uh, at the two thousand and seven December thirty thirtieth, but. I wait till the 31st to have a celebration. That's when I actually found out he died. And uh, we have a little ceremony, and I got friends all around the world that know about it. And at sundown, wherever you are in the world, we break out a little hard liquor, and we have a have a toast to Gordon. Man, that's cool. Yeah, that's, that's a good deal, man. Yeah, yeah, he must have been a hell of a guy. Uh, he was the greatest. Yeah, it sounds like yeah, it. Like I said, he was... All your PHs now are, you know, they're farmers or doctors or lawyers. Or, that's all he ever was, was a professional hunter. Yeah, I can only imagine what you learned from him. That's pretty, pretty crazy. Well, man, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I, hopefully I can get you on again. I'd like to pick your brain or just hear stories, um, you know. Oh, yeah, enjoyable. So, anytime. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, and, and uh, I, uh, I I can't say enough about uh, what you've done for archery, and I, I, I'm, I'm very excited to read about all the different things you've done. I'm kind of glad I haven't because um, I, I wanted to, t- I, like I said, talk to you kind of green, so it'll be interesting. I'm going to start reading up on everything you've done, and then maybe I'll have some better questions for you the next go-round. Oh, yeah. we, we could talk for days just on – the various stuff, the studies, and it, it just goes on and on and oh, almost sure. no end to it. Oh, I can only <laughs> only imagine. So, well, I appreciate you having uh, having you get on here, man, and I, I wish you the best of luck, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk soon again. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Yep, no problem. Have a good night. You have a good night, too.